You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today we've got an interesting show. The closest I think we've come to talking about this topic is when we had John Granger on to talk about Harry Potter and Holly Ordway on to talk about literature. Today we're going to be talking about fairy tales. Yes, you know those cute little stories you tend to read as a child, but... Surely, we adults and grown-ups, we don't really need to pay attention to fairy tales, today, do we? Well, maybe we do. In fact, maybe we do read fairy tales, and we don't even realize it. I mean, if you've gone to see the Chronicles of Narnia movies, for instance, or The Lord of the Rings, you got caught up in a fairy tale. And to, do, to talk about this topic, we've got a Matthew Dickerson on here, who co-wrote a book on this topic. Now, who is Matthew Dickerson? He is a professor of computer science at Middlebury College in Vermont. He owes a PhD from Cornell University. He is the author of several works of fiction and non-fiction in a variety of genres. This fall, he published both a new fantasy novel titled The Betrayed and a new work of Christian projects titled The Mind and the Machine, What It Means to Be Human and Why It Matters. His other recent creative works include a medieval historical novel titled The Rude and the Torque, a three-volume fantasy novel beginning with The Gifted, and a pair of narrative non-fiction books on nature, ecology, trout, and fly fishing titled Trout in the Desert, on fly fishing, human habits, in the cold waters of the arid southwest and downstream, reflections on brook, trout, fly fishing, and the waters of Appalachia co-authored with David O'Hara, who was also the co-author of a book that we're talking about today. Dickerson is also a well-known scholar of fantasy literature. He is the author or co-author of several books, chapters, and essays on the writings of J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, and the co-author of the book we're talking about today, From Homer to Harry Potter, a handbook of myth and fantasy. You can learn more about Matthew Dickerson and his writings at MatthewDickerson.net and Facebook.com slash MatthewDickersonBooks. So, uh, Dr. Dickerson, welcome to the Deep Waters Podcast. Thank you for having me. So, if my audience doesn't know much about you, can you tell us a bit bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing and such? Well, it probably started um, back in college and in graduate school 30 years ago. I grew up Um, Growing up in high school, I was always really good at math and the sciences and was sort of pigeonholed from a young age into following a sort of math, computer science career. But when I was in college, I discovered I really loved literature and I loved writing. I had a fantastic professor um, at my undergraduate college who taught me about Milton, and then I took a class in fantasy literature and a class in uh, science fiction. 
And when I was in graduate school working on a PhD in computer science, I had the privilege of also doing graduate work in Old English language and literature under one of J.R.R. Tolkien's former students. Mm, nice. So I did graduate work in both computer science and literature and have never stopped my interest in both fields. I've continued to study literature, to write uh, um, both creatively, to write my own fantasy novels and my own medieval historical novels, as well as to study fantasy literature and its significance and its meaning and to write about it for others. Mm-hmm. Now, when we talk about fairy tales, Let's just say up and start. What are we talking about with fairy tales? I mean, does it have to be a short little story like the Brevers Grimm tales? Or what? What exactly is a fairy tale? Well, well um, the word fairy uh, really means the realm or the land where the the, the fair folk dwell, um, and so it really it can have a very narrow meaning that would associate with the sort of 19th century fairy tale collections like the Brothers Grimm collected in Germany or like people like Hans Christian Andersen were writing or George MacDonald were writing. But it also has a much broader meaning to mean um, really a whole brand of imaginative literature that would include maybe at one extreme mythic stories um, somewhere in the middle, it might include heroic fantasy novels like the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien, and then sort of at the other end of the extreme, sort of the, the lighthearted fairy tales, or even actually, you know, a lot of the fairy tales that the Grimm's brothers collected, the Grimm brothers collected, were not lighthearted at all. They were short, sometimes humorous, but actually they could be very dark um, and disturbing. So it's it, it really has a broad meaning to, to include, I think, what you might think of as just a, um, a form of imaginative literature that is not necessarily confined to um, the current history that we live in or the current science of the world that we know it, as we know it. I, I find it interesting you mentioned the Grimm's. I've heard some before that the Grimm's were also very devout Christians, and women would have a Greek New Testament open while writing down the fairy tales. You know, I, I don't know a lot about the Grimm brothers and their faith. I know that part of what motivated them to collect the fairy stories was when they began, Germany was being occupied by the armies of Napoleon, and they felt that the, their, their German culture was being lost their language and their stories were being lost. So they set out to try to um, preserve these these beautiful old stories that had been passed on from generation to generation. And they also were trying to preserve old words, old, old German words mm-hmm. as well. And, you know, some of the things they discovered is that there'd be lots and lots of versions of the same fairy tale or something, or maybe very, very similar fairy stories. So, when they first began collecting, they were they were almost trying to transcribe word for word what the old village storytellers were telling. But as they worked on it for 30 to 40 years, they, they really began to add a lot of their own voice and a lot of their own flavoring to these old stories, combining elements from lots of different stories into sort of a single cohesive story. Um, they certainly, I think, believe them to be true and valuable and important. And as a Christian, I would certainly agree with them. Uh, on that 
and that notion that storytelling and especially storytelling in this imaginative uh, mode um, really is a profound and deep way to communicate true stories that are timeless, that train and sharpen and shape our, our imaginations in a way that God can really use our imaginative thinking for all sorts of other things. I mean, so many of the stories of of the Bible that, that um, you know, sometimes even in the Old Testament, like the story of Job or the stories that Jesus would tell or even Revelation take the form of a, of a traditional fairy tale or a, or a folk tale. That doesn't, again, that doesn't mean they're not true, but the form of the story is that, that sort of very imaginative literature, the sort of once upon a time there was a king who went on a journey or you know, once upon a time, a farmer was in a field and found a pearl. They have that uh, once upon a time fabulous element to them. Mm. And we, we, we have to use our imaginations to understand them. Mm. Jesus' storytelling wasn't only aimed at our sort of reasoned intellect. They weren't didactic. They were stories that you enter into with your imagination um, you don't understand them from the outside purely intellectually, but you live out the story and picture it and breathe it. And and that's why I think you can go back to Jesus's parables over and over and over again um, and get something new and, and different and beautiful and challenging time and time again if you allow your imagination uh, to really treat the story as a story and not just a sermon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like how you talk about how it's once upon a time, because these aren't really set at one specific point of time, but right. general terrors. And the, the analogy I thought a lot of people could relate to is a popular science fiction series begins with something along long lines of a long, long time ago, ago in a galaxy far, far away. Right. We don't know when it is, but that's just the story. Or where it is in particular. Mm-hmm. It could be anywhere and it could be everywhere. Mm-hmm. I also think it's really good that you point out that not all of these stories have happy endings. I mean, one of the ones that came to my mind immediately was uh, the story of The Little Mermaid. If you go to the Disney film and you see the story in the end, uh, Ariel gets turned into a human and she's with a man she loves and it's all so wonderful. But if you read the original tale, in the end, the man she loves ends up cheating on her and she turns into a pile of bubbles as she jumps into the sea. Yeah, and that's actually a lot of the um, a lot of the fairy tales that were collected in, in the 19th century or written in the 19th century were a lot more disturbing and dark than the Disneyfied versions that we get now. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, they they were they didn't they didn't lie with they didn't provide sort of a message that. Um, life always has a happy ending or if you just do the right thing, everything will turn out. Okay. Cause we know it, you know, from a worldly point of view, it doesn't, there's a lot of stories that end in death and tragedy and war and violence. And we don't always get, we're not always given an answer about why these things happen. And so I think fairy tales can also um, prepare people to understand that or think through it. Uh, I'm thinking of the GK Chesterton quote when I was says that uh, fairy tales don't exist so that people will believe there are dragons. Children already know that fairy tales exist so that we can know dragons can be beaten. Yeah, exactly. Yep, that's a great, great quote. At the same time, there are some people out there who could be saying, 
Yeah, but Christianity is a real faith. It is not fantasy. We believe these kinds of events actually happen. Why should we be paying attention to fantasy? Shouldn't we be paying attention to reality? Well, again, if you open up the Bible and you were just to start randomly reading in the Bible, the first thing that I would point out is it's very unlikely that you're going to start reading a sermon or part of the Bible that communicates to you primarily in a rational or didactic mode. I mean, certainly there are sermons and, and pieces of instruction in the Bible. There are elements of that in the um, in the works of the prophets or in the New Testament writings. But you are much more likely to put your finger down just in the middle of a story. And those stories are often not explained to us. You know, um, Samuel and Judges and the Gospels themselves are stories. And not every element of the stories is ever explained to us. Or if you put your finger down and you begin reading in the Psalms, it speaks to us in poetic, very much in poetic language. And even in the New Testament, where you have a lot more preaching and sermons and sort of what you might think of as rational discourse Mm -hmm. or or didactic discourse, even there, the teachers, whether it's Jesus or Paul or others, often speak in imaginative language. Mm -hmm. And so we need our minds to be trained in a way that um, knows how to understand things at an imaginative Mm -hmm. level. And, and I think fairy tales are particularly good at at that. Again, when Jesus says, once upon a time there were ten virgins, I don't think Jesus at that point is trying to actually tell a real story. I think he is telling a, a parable, a, a fairy tale, as it were, to help his readers understand what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So There's a story of Jesus's, you know, it's a Christmas story of Jesus's birth the Easter story of his death and resurrection are those real, true historical stories. I absolutely believe that they are. Um, but at the same time, the teachings of Jesus often take the form of, again, parables or fairy tale like stories. Right. And even the gospel story itself, although I affirm that it's historically true, the elements of it are, Elements that, that fairy tales can actually help prepare your imagination to understand um, and think about. You know, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien talks about the Gospels containing all the elements of a perfect fairy tale. Mm-hmm. They're historically true, but being historically true doesn't mean that they fail to be imaginatively true as well. Yeah, in our modern world, we try to act as though kind of being imaginatively true and historically true are somehow two different things. But I don't think those two things are any more odds or incompatible than to say that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. We we affirm that he's fully human and fully divine, even if we don't necessarily know how those two things can fit together. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, two different quotes. Again, going back to Lewis and Chesterton, the classics here about uh, Lewis once talked about how uh, someone in his day told him that England was descending into paganism. And he said, oh, if only that were so, because paganism is just one step away from Christianity. And then how he also said that uh, we have an enchantment of uh, naturalism put on us and we need a stronger enchantment to ward it away. And then, well, yes. Then how Chesterton said that uh, 
paganism was the best thing the world ever had until Christianity came along, and paganism was a stepping ground to Christianity. Yes, there's so many um, pagan myths that have pointers or precursors that prepare people for the truth mm. of the gospel. Right. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis said something else, I believe it was in The Abolition of Man. He writes that the job of an educator is not to cut down trees, but to irrigate deserts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's he was comparing our modern rationalist, um, post-enlightenment, um, materialist world with with the desert. Um, you know, we've we've ceased to believe in anything supernatural or anything spiritual. The modern world believes that all that exists is the physical creation. All that exists. The only way to know truth is through science. The only universe is the physical universe. And I think Lewis saw that the literature of enchantment opens up people's eyes to the idea that there may be more to the universe than just what you can physically touch. It triggers our longing for the spiritual, our longing for the heavenly realms. And so you know, he says, no, we don't, we don't need to cut down trees. There's very few people in our modern world who live in a forest that's too thick with trees. Mm-hmm. Rather, we live in a desert. Mm-hmm. And we need to be irrigating it. We need to be enriching people's imagination with visions and thoughts and ideas that there is more than just the physical material universe. Yeah. I think it's something to point out about the book from Homer and Harry Potter. Something that people might wonder to start is there was no chapter on Lewis or Tolkien, either one in there. Why is that? Well, the whole book is about Lewis and Tolkien. So I think Lewis and Tolkien are the two great fantasists, Mm -hmm. Christian fantasy writers of the 20th century. And really, Mm -hmm. no modern fantasy exists apart from sort of their influence and their setting the stage. They were not only, Lewis and Tolkien were not only creative writers of fantasy literature, but they were also very careful scholars and teachers who thought a lot, not only how do I write creatively, but they thought a lot about what does it mean, what is the role of this literature, how does it um, compare with what's gone on before, how does you know, how does the 19th century fairy tale connect with Greek mythology? So really the whole book from Homer to Harry Potter is exploring in some sense Lewis's and Tolkien's ideas and applying them to modern thought. So we didn't feel like we needed to analyze their literature. That's That's been done. In fact, my co-author of From Homer to Harry Potter and I actually wrote a book about C.S. Lewis called um, Narnia in the Fields of Arbol, the mm-hmm. Environmental Vision of C.S. Lewis. So we've written books about Lewis and Tolkien, but what we wanted to do in From Homer to Harry Potter wasn't to write about them, but actually look through their eyes at other literature, and that's what we're doing. And it's important as we go through the book here to realize that you don't just talk about Christians writing fairy tales, because non-Christians have written them as well. Sure, and there's a lot of very good non-Christian writers of fantasy literature. Mm -hmm. And I think that their stories often 
speak truly and powerfully and can be used by God to point people to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Now, let's uh, start been looking at the stories here. Obviously, since Homer lived before Christianity, he really couldn't be counted as a Christian. But what can we get out of reading Homer? And just for my audience's sake, what are we talking about when we talk about Homer? Um, well, you, you you might, for example, talk about um, his great epics, um, the, the Iliad or the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. So here are some things that I would speak very broadly that story does for us. Mm-hmm. In our modern world, our prevailing viewpoint, we have ceased very often to think about moral decision-making we have replaced the language of making choices and bearing the consequences of our choices. We've replaced the language of um, being morally responsible for what we've done with the language of, um, of you might think of as, as victims, that we are... Uh, we. we um, we don't think we don't focus on how people make choices. We often focus on what programmed people to behave the way that they have behaved. Mm-hmm. Instead of looking at uh, moral failings, we think in terms of illnesses and how can we treat illnesses and treat sicknesses. I think of the um, the 20th century philosopher Bertrand Russell who wrote a book, Why I Am Not a Christian. Mm -hmm. And in that book, Why I Am Not a Christian, he, that essay, he says, no one is responsible for our own choices anymore. And he he goes on and says, it's, um, it's ridiculous to put up a statue to someone who wrote, writes a poem or to sort of incarcerate somebody or blame somebody who commits a murder because none of us have free will anymore. So that's, you know, I think the big lie of our modern time, of our past century, that we are not responsible for our choices, that we are the victims of things that happen to us, but not ones who are responsible for what we do. And that really gets all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, right? Right. When God comes and talks to Eve, God's question to Eve is, what have you done? Eve wants to say, what has somebody else done? God wants Eve to say, but what have you done? Mm-hmm. Adam wants to say what somebody else has done, but God wants Adam to say, but what have you done? And that's the story of sin throughout history. God keeps saying to you, what have you done? And we want to point out what someone else has done to us. We don't want to take responsibility. Yeah. All that is a very long uh, answer to get around to. I think one of the things that stories do very powerfully is they show us that our actions have consequences. Mm-hmm. You can't really write a good story with good character unless the characters are making choices, unless we see the results of those choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Lewis even said something uh, something similar that um, you know when he talks about his own writing, he's he gets to know his characters by seeing what they do and how they act and how they make decisions. Mm-hmm. So I would say that any good story writing, whether the author is a Christian or not, if that story is revealing that we are responsible for our choices and that the choices that we make have real consequences in the world, 
that story is communicating something powerfully that our modern world often denies. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking when we look at uh, something like the Odyssey, that Odysseus could be seen as a great hero of sorts, and maybe a lot of us would have a harder time relating to Odysseus, but yeah. his wife Penelope, on the other hand, she could be seen as kind of a simple, ordinary wife. She's just really loved by her husband, and she makes some drastic choices yes. of a novel, such as she's weaving, for those who don't know, she's weaving the, this fabric, and she's telling all these suitors who are saying, your husband is dead, marry me instead. She says, as soon as I'm done weaving this, I'll pick one of you. And during the night while they're, while they're sleeping, she, she undoes, undoes everything. Yeah. So, you know, there are elements like that. There are things that we can look up to in, in the characters and, and say that they're heroic for certain things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think the, the Greeks, in one hand, m- misunderstood the nature of God, right? They didn't understand mm-hmm. um, in, in, in worshiping gods rather than the God. We can say that they were wrong about that. Um, and yet there's other ways that um, by acknowledging that there's more than humans at work in the world, mm-hmm. and this is where this is why Lewis would say that paganism is closer to Christianity than modern atheism, mm-hmm. that the pagans at least acknowledged that that there were forces more powerful than humans at work in the in the in the world, mm-hmm. um, and that you know we had to interact with them, we had to respond to them. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of worship, you know, they, the, the gods were worshipped. Mm-hmm. And we've lost the sense today in the world that it's worthy to worship something that's greater than yourself, oh, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so if, if, the, if pagan mythology can train your imagination just to understand the notion that there is that in the universe which is greater and more significant than you, that is worthy of worship. Then when you finally are introduced to the real God, then your heart, your imagination has already begun to be trained to the point where you can then attribute worship to that, to that or to whom, to he whom really is worthy of that worship. Whereas if modern secularism trains you that you, you yourself are the only thing to worship, then your heart isn't going to be ready to ever listen to or hear the, the story of the true God. You know, when you talk about uh, how we don't see something that's greater than ourselves, there was uh, something that Ravi Zacharias talked about years ago with, I think, a school teacher going to children or elementary school and asking about their heroes and such. Yeah. And, of course, you love seeing ones like Batman, Superman, things like that. No one, like a famous figure in history and such, unfortunately. But what she found most concerning was... How many of them looked and said, me, as the answer to the question? I mean, every kid, I think, in some ways wants to be a hero. Yes. And, but to say, I am my hero, that's something different. Yeah. Speaking of heroes, I think there's another element, of course, which stories, and particularly stories in the fantastic mode or the fairy tale mode, can really provide, which is um, heroism a model of that which is virtuous and that which is heroic. Mm-hmm. Dick Kies has, one, has several 
wonderful books. Um, I think he first introduced this notion in Beyond Identity, and then he has a whole book about true heroism mm -hmm. that he wrote and wrote, and he talks about the importance of heroism, and he and he shares an idea that's been with me for a long time, which is that you know we we may have these mo these abstract moral principles. Um, and they're good abstract moral principles like love your neighbor, um, you know, don't be selfish, uh, be willing to give your life for somebody else. But those are all abstractions. Mm -hmm. What a hero does is gives us a model of somebody living those abstractions out. Mm -hmm. And a hero, good heroes often provide for us a much deeper motivating factor to live heroically than a mere abstraction does. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about staying up late at night, um, and if you pick up a really dry textbook, it may likely put you to sleep. Right. But if you pick up your favorite novel, you two hours later may still be reading, and you may be more awake than you were two hours earlier, because right. the novel has engaged your imagination. Yes. And that's what heroes do. They engage your imagination. I may, um, I may not be... If it, if it really comes down to a difficult situation where I'm called to love somebody in a really dif difficult way, having been given a set of heroes that, that live that love out and that I can emulate and imitate may be much more powerful in shaping my behavior than just being given some abstract principle. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I would say that everybody has heroes, whether you know it or not. The question is, how are you going to choose those heroes? How are you going to shape your imagination so that the heroes you have are heroic for the right reasons mm -hmm. and not the wrong reasons? That's, by the way, where I think Christianity brought a lot to the sort of pagan heroic model. If you look at the Greek concept of heroism in the Greek mythology and even the pre-Christian Germanic concept of heroes – Heroes were often here, seen as heroes simply because they were really strong. You know, the Greek heroes were heroes because they were the, the, the sons of gods or goddesses. They were half-gods or demigods. And they were heroic simply because they were really strong and could defeat an enemy. The great, <clears throat> the great German hero, Siegfried or Sifrath or Siegfried, depending on which version, you know, you listen to, is considered to be a hero only because he slayed a dragon. But actually, from a moral point of view, he's not very heroic at all. But in German literature, he was considered to be this great hero. And I think the wonderful thing that Christianity brought to the tradition of heroism is it said, no, you're not a hero simply because you're big and strong and you can defeat a dragon. It is your moral virtue that really, truly makes you heroic. And that's one of the things that I think J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis's literature really brought to fruition, that the greatest heroes in their literature are not the big and the strong and the powerful, the people who can swing a sword or shoot a bow. They're diminutive hobbits or they are children who are heroic simply because they did the right thing when it was called on them to do the right thing even if it was really uncomfortable or personal risk, personally risky. I'm, I'm thinking about some of that better. I, I'm a pretty big Superman fan. Don't read the comics, but I've seen the TV shows. I've watched Smallville like a fanatic when it was on. 
And my wife is a big Dragon Ball fan. And in both the last Dragon Ball movie, Resurrection F, and the last Superman movie, Man of Steel, I said they, I didn't like both of them. And the reason was in each one at the end, the hero explicitly kills the villain. And you can say all you want to, there was no other choice. I say, no, no. I know these heroes. They always find another means to do it. And it's just kind of killing me because, like, this isn't their character. They, they are not killers. Their, their, hero, their villains might accidentally die or something, but it's not intentional, ever. Yeah, at the end of the, the Lord of the Rings, um, the main hero, Frodo, his main job is to keep people from killing others in anger or revenge. Mm-hmm. It's not sweeping in and use his military strength to defeat the enemy. It's rather to keep people from killing when they don't need to. Mm-hmm. Now that can lead, though, to another question, though, because the next fairy tale we talk about with is Beowulf. And Beowulf is really a very violent tale. And the hero does have to cure some monsters in there, which I think is different from killing human beings. He has to cure some monsters. And can can we ever justify violence in a fairy tale like this? Well, I guess the question is what do you mean by justifying violence? Mm-hmm. I think um, in terms of uh, so one question is is it legitimate to use a violent means to defend somebody else? So, for example, if um, if your child or your spouse was in danger of being mugged or molested, would it be legitimate to physically defend them? And, and my answer would be yes. I think I think to defend the weak is a legitimate use of physical strength. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure if you even call that violence. Is it violent to protect somebody from violence? So, um, even even the question of, of that is there any justification of violence? I think J.R.R. Tolkien, who who did a lot of his writing, sort of in the years leading up to and then during World War II believe that someone like Hitler had to be opposed mm-hmm. and that opposing Hitler was something that required military strength. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't oppose Hitler, then, then the violence that Hitler is trying to perpetrate against Jews and lots of other minorities is, is horrific. Mm-hmm. And so by opposing Hitler, you're not committing violence. You are opposing violence. Mm-hmm. You're using strength to oppose violence. But Tolkien would also go on to say, and I think Lewis would say something very similar, that you cannot defeat evil by becoming evil. Mm-hmm. So Tolkien had a very strong, for example, to, to speak to the current relevance of what seems like, of, of the timeless tales of J.R.R. Tolkien remain relevant today. And I'll suggest one area where they are relevant is to the question of should we torture a prisoner? Should place someplace like Guantanamo Bay exist? And I think J.R.R. Tolkien's answer was unquestionably no. It is never legitimate to torture a prisoner, even in, even in order to win a war. 
He said, yes, we should oppose people like Hitler, and we need to oppose him with military might. But I think he felt like it would be better to lose the war than to win the war by becoming evil people. Mm -hmm. So simply using physical strength to resist the enemy is not in and of itself evil. But if what you do to resist the enemy is torture prisoners or, you know, poison the earth or, um, treat, you know, treat prisoners poorly, if you become an evil person in order to defeat evil, you haven't defeated the evil at all. You've simply replaced one evil with another evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking when you talk about using violence to stop unjust violence, we should say in such better. Wyatt Earp was reported to have called his gun the peacemaker. Because when he came to town, whoever was violating the peace, he took care of him and brought the peace back. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I no, don't know enough about that story and what really happened there to, to ask whether it would be, mm. whether it would be justified. Mm. Um, I do know that in The Lord of the Rings, the ultimate answer to defeating Sauron was not one of military victory. Mm-hmm. The ultimate evil to defeating Sauron was to destroy the source of his power. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was actually very clear in The Lord of the Rings that Sauron could not ultimately be defeated. The evil could not ultimately be defeated through military means. Mm-hmm. So there are moments, and they seem to be short-term, where, yes, we do have to, we, we may have to respond to violence with strength to defend the, to defend the weak. Mm-hmm. But it's never justified to defeat evil by doing something which is evil ourselves. But one example that I think that's a bit odd in office, and maybe you could share some light, is in C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, in the yes. second book, Perilandra, where where Lewis has the character Ransom actually defeat the yeah. unman through yeah. violence. So, so that was the second answer I was going to get at. <coughs> um, in The Lord of the Rings, and sometimes in C.S. Lewis's writing, um, there are what you might think of as demonic foes that have to be fought. Mm-hmm. Not human foes, but demonic foes. Right. So one of Tolkien's great heroes is Gandalf. Mm-hmm. And Gandalf actually is, is what you might call an incarnate angel mm-hmm. in Tolkien's mythology. Gandalf the wizard is actually an angel who takes human form like, for example, the angel Gabriel has at times, and lives among humans in order to help the humans of Middle-earth to use the strength that they have to resist evil. Mm-hmm. So Gandalf almost never uses any, any of his power against mortal human foes. But he will use his angelic power against demonic foes. So if you think of the fact that we are... Um, as Paul writes in Ephesians 6, our ultimate battle is not against flesh and blood, mm-hmm. but against you know the, the spiritual forces, I might say demonic forces of darkness. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that sometimes fantasy literature does for us is it personifies those demonic forces. Gandalf does not, in The Lord of the Rings, go out and swing a sword very often to... to so accept that very last resort to defeat mere mortal foes, but he will use his power against other demonic foes, against the Balrogs, against other fallen wizards, 
or against the ring wraiths. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Lewis is doing the same thing in Paralandra. <clears throat> that the human foe that Ransom is fighting is merely a human body that at that point has been fully taken over by a demonic presence. Mm-hmm. So at that point, their hero, Ransom, is not actually essentially fighting another human, but Ransom, I believe, at that point, is fighting a demonic foe. Mm-hmm. So they are, Lewis and Tolkien, I believe, are both personifying, in some ways, spiritual warfare. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I think both of them would acknowledge that there are times when we must use physical strength to de- protect the weak from oppressors. Mm-hmm. Um, but many of the things you may think of as battles are actually not against human foes protecting the weak from oppressors, but they're actually against demonic foes. Mm-hmm. That's where the real, I think, and that's kind of one of the real moral lessons of a lot of Lewis's and Tolkien's writing is that our ultimate battle should not be against other humans, but our ultimate battle is against demonic powers, mm-hmm. against Satan, against the evil one. So, um, what is it then that makes a Beowulf be seen as a Christian classic? So, the Beowulf story was probably in its origins, um, an older tale that was likely an, an old pagan tale that a Christian poet heard, got a hold of, and sort of retold with the Christian, if you will, a Christian moral lesson layered on top of this old pagan myth. There's a lot of debate about this, but I think that's probably a pretty well understood scholarly viewpoint. You have a Christian poet um, who's taken this older material and is trying to make a Christian tale out of it. And so it's one of the first places we have this new notion of moral heroism. Beowulf is a Germanic hero in the sense that he's big and strong. He's stronger than 13 men. He's got the power of a giant bear. He can defeat supernatural foes. But he's also portrayed as a moral hero. So you have this mix of the old Germanic hero first coming in contact with a new Christian vision of what real heroism is like. Mm-hmm. I think the story of Beowulf felt very compatible to a Christian author or Christian poet, maybe precisely because the foes that Beowulf is fighting are not human foes. Grendel and Grendel's mother and the dragon are, if you will, they are, again, like Tolkien's characters or Lewis's characters, they are demonic foes. They are superhuman creatures. They are descendants of, uh, you know, you, you might think of something like descendants of the Nephilim. And so their super, Beowulf's superhuman strength goes up against a character that is not another human. Yeah. That's one possible, one possible reading. I'm not sure to what extent that's the central point of Beowulf. I think the point I'm maybe more confident in is that you have the sort of first blending of a, a pagan Germanic hero who's heroic because he's big and strong and he's a warrior 
with the Christian notion of a hero who's heroic because of their moral virtue. And I think it's important to consider that uh, Christians didn't borrow ideas, per se, and such, but they did learn to to work ideas into their own culture and such. Yeah, I mean, if you're trying to communicate Christian truth to a Germanic people, you need to learn their language and lead, mm-hmm. learn their storytelling form. I mean, when Paul went into, first went in to preach in Athens, <clears throat> his first attempt at a sermon didn't seem to go very well because he's trying to require the Athenians to understand his Jewish culture and his Jewish language and his Jewish storytelling form. And there, there, a lot of them are just scoffing at him. They're ridiculing him. They're saying that what you, what you're saying doesn't make sense. So what Paul does is he then spends the day in the city of Athens and he studies the, the Athenians myths and he learns their storytelling form. And then he goes back to them at, at and in trying, instead of trying to communicate the gospel to them through stories in language that they would be, not be familiar with, he uses their pagan mythology to communicate the true gospel to them. He says, you have this old myth about the unknown God. And there is truth in your myth. Let me explain to you now the truth behind your, your mythic system. And so a poet like Beowulf or the you know the, the early Christian the early Christians who are proclaiming the good news to the Germanic peoples, they're they're doing something similar often. They are picking up the Germanic stories, the Germanic heroic tales, the Germanic myths, and finding a way to communicate the gospel in those other pagan myths, just like Paul was doing in Athens. And it seemed to be much more effective. So often the church wants to require that for somebody to hear the gospel, they have to come into our churches and listen to the gospel preached in our little subculture language with our musical styles, you know, in, in our liturgical services. And even just getting someone who doesn't believe in God into the church in the first place if you can do it it's wonderful but oftentimes it never happens no one goes into the church and if they do go into the church they often leave confused because what they hear of the gospel is so wrapped up into our christian culture that it doesn't make sense to them i'm thinking also is he's going out into the greek he didn't require the greeks to come into the jewish temple to hear the gospel he went out and preached it to them in their own areopagus in a language that they could understand. Mm-hmm. Now, hopefully some of them would later then come in and worship in the temple or in the, you know, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. in the synagogues, I should say, not the temple, but in the synagogues. They will worship in, the, in, their, in their synagogues, but initially he doesn't require that they go into the synagogue to hear the gospel. He says, let me preach it to you in your language, in your mythical system. Mm-hmm. I, I think that it's likely that even... Um, Moses may have been doing something similar. People have pointed out that there's a pre-existing flood myth, right? Mm-hmm. 
that probably had been circulated before the biblical flood story. The Epic of Gilgamesh is older, as far as we know, is older than the Genesis flood story. And Moses spent 40 years being trained by the Egyptians. He spent another 40 years being trained by a Midianite priest. So Moses was certainly fluent in in the pagan mythologies of his time. So when it's Moses' time to tell the Israelites to to recount the story of the flood, um, he doesn't have to create a story from scratch. He can begin with their own existing flood myths, but then say, let me tell you the true version of this flood myth. Let me tell you not just that there was a flood that wiped out the whole world, but let me now tell you why that flood happened. So just as Paul goes to the people of Athens and says, you have a myth and your myth conveys truth. It doesn't convey the whole truth, but it conveys a lot of the truth and it will point you to the truth if you let it. Let me now explain to you what the real truth is. It may be that that's what Moses was doing. He didn't have to create a flood myth out of nothing. The people already had existing flood myths. Mm -hmm. But what he can do is tell them the true version of the flood story. Mm -hmm. Tell them why it really happened. It was a punishment for sin. It wasn't just a random wipe out of the earth, but it was a punishment for sin. But not only that, it was a punishment that came with the promise of grace a promise of restoration, a promise that God wouldn't do it again. You know, I think when you start talking about this and using language of myth, wasn't it C.S. Lewis who defined the gospel as true myth? Yeah, and Tolkien descri- described it as a f- true fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the true myth of a true fairy tale. Mm-hmm. We, we in our modern age are so closely associated the word myth with the word lie, but that's not really where the roots of the word lie. In fact, I've been told that if you go to really ancient Greek before the time of Plato, that the original word myth, muthos, was almost indistinguishable from the word logos, that they both meant an account of the truth. And then the word myth eventually became an account of the truth through story. But then in ancient Greek, it wasn't the, you know, the idea that myth was lie and logos or logos was true, but that both of these were just two different accounts of the truth. Mm-hmm. And so the, you know, the very language of the Bible is often a mythical language, not because it's not true, but because it's dealing with, it's dealing with the great, um, the big questions of why things happen. Mm-hmm. You, you, asked, you started off the interview asking me, what is fairy tale? What are fairy tales? Mm-hmm. Um, and one way of thinking about fairy tales is they are stories that happen on the boundaries between the world of men and the worlds of the gods and the angels. Mm-hmm. In Old Norse, the word uh, Asgard in Old Norse was where the gods dwelt, where Thor and Odin and Loki dwelt. Mm-hmm. In Midgard, or in Tolkien's terminology, in the English verse, Middle Earth, Middle Earth is really just an English ver- version of Midgard, is the world where men live. Mm-hmm. Fairy tales happen when those two worlds come together. Mm-hmm. When the gods of Asgard come and walk among men in Middle Earth. When the gods of Mount Olympus 
come down and walk in the little in the villages of Greece. When the worlds of the gods and the angels, if you might think of the the world of fairy, overlaps with the world of men. When we're on the borders where those two worlds come together, that's what fairy tales are. Mm-hmm. And if you believe that our earth is haunted, that it is that it is that God doesn't just exist outside of space and time like a blind watchmaker who made the universe and then just sits back and watches it. If you believe like I do that God created the universe and is intimately involved in the universe, then you believe that the worlds of heaven and the worlds of earth, the worlds of the God and the angels and the worlds of men are always coming together. Mm -hmm. That we live in a world that's haunted by, you know, indwelt by the other world. And so fairy stories in that sense would be the natural sort of story that should emerge where the world of the gods or as Christians would say, the world of the God and the world of men come together. You know, when you were talking about that, I was thinking that you could have an interesting story about say the gods and Asgard and how they go about their lives. And you can have an interesting story about how we here go about our lives. But when they change, all of a sudden you have a movie like four, for instance, yes. and that's totally different yeah. then. Yes, but, but but the point of Thor is you might say that that is a fairy tale. Right. It's a tale of what happens when a human goes to Asgard or what happens when a god from Asgard comes down to Middle-earth. Mm-hmm. And our world gets shaken up. Mm-hmm. Fairy tales tell the stories of our world get sh- getting shaken up because it's coming in contact with the, the, the realm of fairy you know, we, we could, uh, we're not going to be able to cover every series to talk about in the book, but we could talk a little bit here because this could kind of blur the line some between science fiction and fantasy, and perhaps a good look at Batman would be go to a very non-Christian, back anti-Christian look at this, and that would be Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm not a fan of his writing. I don't, I don't think the books are very well written, Um they're incoherent at times. That sometimes it's not clear whether he's writing a science fiction book or a fairy tale, and uh, they're very didactic. They're very preachy. Mm-hmm. I felt like Philip Pullman has a chip in his shoulder, and he's more concerned in his books with ridicule and Christianity than with simply telling a good story. Mm-hmm. Um, he really despised C.S. Lewis, and he wanted to be a sort of anti-C.S. Lewis. And he succeeds in doing that. <clears throat> but there are points in the story where there's actually some good writing. And interestingly enough, there's points where the story itself completely contradicts the preaching of the author. That the author is often preaching that no one should ever submit to some higher moral authority. That all of the talk of Christianity and Judaism that we need to submit to the will of God, that that's all horrible. It takes away the freedom of humans, that all the stories of there being in God were just stories meant to impress, to to, uh, oppress, not impress. They're all stories meant to oppress humans and that we need to be break free of that oppression. Mm -hmm. That's what the author keeps trying to preach. But interestingly enough, in the series, um, the, the victory, if you will, the way that evil is defeated is precisely because a couple of the characters submit their own desires to some greater moral good. 
Mm-hmm. And so the story, ironically enough, speaks some sort of a profound truth, even if that profound truth is diametrically opposed to what the author was trying to preach at us. Now, could it be even that it's kind of unavoidable, perhaps, to have to do this? You can't picture a good fairy tale about something like this. I'm not, I don't, I'm not quite sure I get the question. Uh, it could be even that it's really necessary to have this whole greater good concept. Yes. That, that Philip Pullman could say he wants to get away with it, but you can't really have a fairy tale about a greater good. Uh, Peter Kraft, a wonderful philosopher from oh, Boston yes. College, mm-hmm. um, you're probably familiar with his apologetics work. Very. He is also a scholar on the writings of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Mm-hmm. He also has a book of short proverbs. And one of the proverbs from that book, I think it's called The Turn of the Clock, is states, um, theories lie more readily than stories. Mm-hmm. That is why our psychologists tell us we are good, but our novelists tell us that we are evil. But the idea that theories lie more readily than stories I think is a very interesting one, that it's very hard to write a good story that doesn't have some truth in it. If a story is completely dishonest about human nature, about human character, about how people interact, no one will believe the story, no one will read it. It will just ring untrue to us. So, so whether, you, whether you're worldview is true or not, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe in God or not, to write a good story requires that you are communicating in some way truth to people. Mm-hmm. So I think that was kind of what I, what I actually eventually saw. I would, I would not recommend Phil, Philip Pullman's books, I think. As I said, I think they're often poorly written and very preachy. Yeah. But there is a sense in which when he lets the fairy tale take over, that they actually have this true message at the end, even if all the preaching of the story is false. And, and then, of course, there are some moral qualms. Like, for instance, it's pretty much like a young preteen boy and girl, and at one point it's pretty much kind of assumed they're having sex. Yeah, they're, they're, they're supposedly having this deep, profound, um, intimate relationship, which is com- to me completely unbelievable for two children the age that they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so that's part of what I think of as a, is the bad writing. Mm-hmm. And for those who don't know, it's pretty much a war against Yahweh as the main villain. Right. Yeah. Yeah, as I said, it's an anti-theistic or anti-Lewis mm-hmm. story. Yeah. I'd like to remind everyone, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. My guest is Dr. Matthew Dickerson here. And uh, we're talking about his book, From Homer to Harry Potter. But if you're here next week, we have a return guest we'd like to have on here. Dr. Hugh Ross is going to be back here talking with us. And he's going to be talking about his latest book, The Improbable Planet. So, well, today we're talking about science fiction, some briefly. If you're interested in science... Come back next week. For now, let's get back to Dr. Dickerson talking about the book From Homer to Harry Potter. Now, I did open talking about Philip Pullman by talking about science fiction. Some What really differentiates science fiction from fairy tale? 
Well, I can answer the question with sort of very broad, sweeping brushstrokes. There are certainly works of literature that straddle the borders between these two. There are certainly some counterexamples. So any sort of broad categorizing of this will will by nature be a little bit of a simplification. But let me try to paint this with broad brushstrokes. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest difference is that science fiction is imaginative or speculative fiction in which, in some sense, everything is explainable by science. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't, it, so it imagines a future or it imagines another solar system and it imagines some other reality and then tells a story in this imagined reality. But in the story set in this imagined reality, everything ultimately has a scientific explanation. Mm-hmm. Fairy tale or fantasy literature is also speculative or imaginative fiction. It's also said in some other world that's not our present here and now. That's that's why science fiction and fantasy are often lumped together in the shelves of a bookstore. Mm-hmm. Because they both are this speculation or this imagination of living in some other world, either a different time or a different place or a different planet or a different universe. They're, all, they're both speculating about what some other reality might be like. But whereas science fiction tries to say that everything in this other reality is explainable via scientific law, fantasy or fairy tale says there are things which are not explainable by any law of science. They are the work of enchantment or they have a spiritual explanation or a supernatural explanation. Mm-hmm. That is why, in many ways, science fiction and fantasy not only don't belong in the same shelf in a bookstore, even though they're both speculative, but they're di- diametrically opposed. Mm-hmm. Science fiction says everything is explainable by science, which means, in essence, there is no supernatural, there is no spiritual. Mm-hmm. Everything that ever happens can be explained by science. Mm-hmm. And fantasy says, no, there are things that have no explanation in scientific terms. So to give an example, uh, you know, in Star Trek, you may be teleported from a planet up to a spaceship, right, by the teleporter. Mm-hmm. There's a scientific explanation or, or they imagine a scientific explanation of how that works. Mm-hmm. In the Harry Potter stories, you use a magic spell to disapparate. Mm-hmm. And, and suddenly jump from being in one place to being in someplace else. The end result may be the same. In both examples, somebody goes instantly from being in one place to being in another place. But the means by which that happens are very, very significant. The, the differences are very significant. Whether that happens by something that's scientifically explainable or whether that happens by something that has no natural explanation and only a supernatural explanation because it gets at the underlying assumption about the world is there a supernatural yeah there are some wonderful christian science fiction writers who really deal with moral issues um Mm -hmm. and they don't have that assumption that everything's explainable by science 
they're using some of the surface or exterior uh, aspects of science fiction, but with a different assumption. So I think what I just gave you is a, is a general overview and a broad brushstroke. Yeah. That doesn't mean, of course, that a Christian can't enjoy scientific fit, science fiction. Been very, no, be. I know a lot of devout Christians who are Trekkies right. and big Star Wars fans, for instance. Right. I read a lot of books that are not written by Christians, and I enjoy them, and I find, find them often inspiring, meaningful, mm-hmm. truthful, helpful imaginative. There's all sorts of good writers. There's good musicians. There's wonderful composers. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and there's no evidence that I've ever read to suggest that, uh, that Mozart was, you know, had a devout Christian faith, right? Mm-hmm. But he's a great composer and Christians can sit and listen to Mozart's music and be delighted by it or moved by it. Um, and I think this is certainly the same thing is true. I think a Christian can read science fiction by a Christian author, a Christian can read science fiction by a non-Christian author, can watch Star Trek movies and Star Wars movies and enjoy them and find artistic elements and good storytelling and good cinematography. Um, They can find some often good moral messages in in them. What I would invite the Christian reader or Christian filmmaker or, or, or film viewer to do, though, is in addition to the sort of um, artistic response to the film, then I think we're also called to employ a, a spiritual and intellectual response too, which is to try to understand what is the underlying worldview? How does it differ from my worldview? Uh, how can this help me understand the culture I live in? And how can it understand, help me understand how to both communicate the gospel to my culture and just also just understand my culture? Yeah. Now, so I think, I think a Christian would be remiss in our world today. I think it'd be a failure for Christians in our world today if you did not go to films or read books or listen to music that came from outside the church. If Paul never took the time to read the to 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 listen to and read the Greek myths of his day, he never would have been able to communicate to the Greeks in Athens about the gospel. And if Christians today are completely uh, separated from and uneducated about aspects of our secular culture, we'll, we'll never understand that people around us will never communicate the gospel. So I think there's some sort of a balance between letting good stories and good movies and good music shape our imagination um, and listening to you know good music and good books and whatever from non-Christians and appreciating the artistic value, appreciating the stories, growing from it, learning from it, and, and then also being able to understand, well, what are the elements of this that are true and good and beautiful? And what are the elements that I can appreciate that I can disagree with even while I appreciate the artistic merit of it? You know, while we can often see gospel symbolism in stories and movies and such, we also, I think, as Christians have to be in danger of it, have to be aware of danger of it. We're not forcing that on to what we're reading or seeing. Right. I remember when I was in seminary, we had a professor who liked to show movies, and he gave us the Truman Show to watch for a group event one night, and we all had a discussion. All, all these people started seeing, well, I think that this is talking about this in the Bible and such, and I'm seeing that I'm kind of thinking, well, guys, you might be able to type into something from the Bible, sure, but don't you think it's important to see what the author is trying to say first? 
Yeah, absolutely. That's just artistic integrity. Mm-hmm. The first goal in understanding a work is to understand what the author was saying and not to force it into your own into your own worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and, and 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 also I think it involves you know we have to when we're when we're listening to books when when we're listening to music or watching films or reading books, it's also got to be a lot deeper than than things like just counting the number of swear words. Yeah. Or asking whether or not there's there's violence or something. I think um, there's got to be a deeper understanding of the artistic merits of of the work that we're looking at. Yeah, because something could be like seen as a good wholesome family, say Disney movie, and yeah. it could have a worldview completely abhorrent. Absolutely right. Whereas there might be a, a film for which if a character who's honestly portrayed uses bad language. Mm-hmm. And yet that portrayal of that character is actually has a profoundly Christian message. You know, I was thinking, for instance, we could talk about a movie like, say, Schindler's List, which is rated R and has very explicit nudity in it, but I think yeah. that's a very good movie for Christians to be watching. And I, I wouldn't bring a, I probably wouldn't bring a, you know, a 12 or 13-year-old yeah. child to it. Yeah. Maybe. Um but, you know, having said that, yes, I would I would agree with you. And isn't it also, I think, sometimes a problem in Christian literature and Christian film and such? Someone just messaged me about this a couple of days ago, but it's kind of like they, they think the audience is stupid and they have to spell everything out explicitly right. about the gospel to them. And, no, you don't have to do this. C.S. Lewis didn't do it. Tolkien didn't do it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I um, oh, about twenty years ago, my first my first novel was published. It's a work of medieval heroic historic fiction. It was set in the early seventh century in northern Europe, and inspired by some um, medieval literature, and inspired a little bit by Tolkien's work. Mm-hmm. And it's set in a sort of a dark, um, a dark time of Germanic warlords. I don't think there's a lot of violence in in my stories. There's actually a romance and a love story and and a lot of friendships. But in the end, you know, um, and I don't want to give, you know, a complete spoiler, but let's just say that um, at the end of the story, my heroes don't all convert to Christianity. And I remember um, I got a lot of good reviews, the book did, and about the only negative review the, the book got, actually, was from a reviewer who reviews books for libraries at Christian high schools. Mm-hmm. And their comment was, since the main character doesn't become a Christian at the end, the book is not redeeming. Wow. And, uh, you know, I thought Christians need to have a lot more integrity in their storytelling. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of stories in the real world don't end with everybody becoming a Christian and all happily living living happily ever after. Right. And, um, and also if you live in a, if you live in a society that lives by the sword, you are going to have people who die by the sword. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself is, is actually a profound Christian truth. Um, that I think the storytelling can get, can get across. So I, I don't think Christian artists, whether they're filmmakers or, or musicians or authors like myself 
serve anybody well if we're telling trite stories with fake characters and giving easy answers. Because mm-hmm. most of life does not have easy answers, and people are three-dimensional. Yeah, I, I really say it, but so much Christian literature and film that I see, it's just bad literature and bad film. There, there's no enjoyment. The main reason people go see these films or buy these books is because they're said to be Christian. And bad. Yeah, they're sermons, and they're sermons that are thinly veiled as stories. But they're only thinly veiled as stories. They're really just sermons. Mm-hmm. And what we really need, I think, is good literature, good storytelling um, that's willing to enter into, you know, I would say enter into the pain of the world and not give easy answers to it. That's willing to acknowledge that um, lots of people who who are working to follow Christ have lots of flaws and lots of problems in their lives and don't always do everything perfectly. And lots of people who are not Christians actually do a lot of really good, wonderful things in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's all just being honest mm-hmm. and, you know, good storytelling and good art. I think this can be a great segue, actually, into another series where I've about what you talk about. And I've never heard of this series before I read the book. And I found the whole premise so intriguing. I went to a library and ordered a book, and I saw them all cheap on Kindle shortly afterwards. I'm like, oh, I'll go ahead and buy them all. And I've only read the first one, but it's called The Book of a Dun Cow. And what was yes. so intriguing to me about this, and this is by a Christian writer, is that this is a fairy tale that take, that involves heroes saving the world from a giant dragon monster that could wrap itself all around the earth if it wanted to. And all these heroes spend their time in a farmhouse because they're all animals. Yeah, it's a wonderful piece, and it's a it's a beautiful example of um, all the elements of fairy tale. Earlier in the interview, I talked about sort of the spectrum. On the one hand, you have the the high mythic stories of creation and the gods, mm-hmm. and then somewhere in the middle, you have the just heroic sagas and legends like the Lord of the Rings. And at the other end, you have this, these little short fairy tales. And Walt Wanderin's The Book of the Dun Cow somehow seamlessly interweaves all three of these things, sort of big, great cosmic myths and heroic stories and and just, you know, almost children's fairy tales into a very beautiful story. Um, and in many ways, it is a... Um, I, I don't want to say an allegory in, in a really narrow sense of the word, but it really is a, a sort of a telling of what what it is like when the church tries to live out what it means to be a church, because uh, that's really in many ways what this barnyard of animals is. It's it's the church, um, and it's a church that's full of flawed human beings, all trying to love God and trying to love each other, and and often just not doing it very well those who talk too much and those who are gossips and those who undermine each other and those who are really proud and those who uh, really work really hard but are disdainful of those who don't work hard. I mean, it's just, it's beautifully told and you can't help but read it and see all the people you love in it. The author, Walt Wanger Jr., is a, it was a pastor for many years and you can see his pastoral imagination at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
in the story. So it's just, it's, it really, you can read it as a beautiful myth, you can read it as a, as a heroic fantasy, you can read it as a fairy tale. It succeeds at all of those levels, and it's very deeply moving. It's one of the stories that even though it won an a, a American Book Award for children's literature, it's, it's really not children's literature, and I can c- continue to reread it, and I will, you know, I will have passage in it where, as an adult reading it, I will still cry. Yeah. And you talk about how it's all about us as humans in many ways, but at least in the first one, and you could correct me if I'm wrong about second and third one, there are no humans in the story. No, and, and I think that's part of the reason it can speak so powerfully, because, you know, if, if um, think about Nathan the prophet. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when, you know, this, the tale of how David sinned horribly? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, first having an affair with, your, with um, Bathsheba, and then ordering the murder of Uriah, her husband. Mm-hmm. I, you know, when Nathan went to confront David on this, he didn't go and confront David directly. Mm-hmm. I think you know if he had just gone to directly confront David, David might never have listened. He might have ordered Nathan to be killed. He might have gotten so defensive of what he did that it would have hardened his heart even further. Mm-hmm. So Nathan goes and tells him a sort of fairy tale about a man who's got sheep and a neighbor who has only one sheep and a guest who comes to visit. And David, in hearing Nathan's story, is able to make the sort of moral judgment about what's right and wrong before his defenses are up and before he recognizes it's about him. So the story speaks really powerfully to David. Nathan uses uses the story in a really beautiful way. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, Walt Wangren's story, The Book of the Dun Cow, and the sequels to that, they can do the same thing, that, that when you read the stories and you let them seep into your imagination, you love them just as stories. You just appreciate them as a good fairy tale, a good fantasy mm-hmm. um, work of, of heroism. Then you begin to say, oh, yeah, but but I see myself in that story, and... Um, I see in myself in the story the ways that I'm actually harmful to the church. Mm. I see myself in the ways that I'm too proud, or I see myself in the ways that my gossip can un- undermine those around me. I can see myself the way that I talk too much and I don't listen enough. Mm-hmm. I can see that I'm too passive. You know, whatever it is, you know, you see it first in the animals because it's this imaginative tale. But after you see it and understand it, the animals, then you can begin to see it in yourself, just like David did with Nathan's story. You know, I'm thinking of right now of a quote from C.S. Lewis about watch for dragons. Not how. That there are dragons guarding our culture and everything out there. And if we come out and we tell the story explicitly, the dragons were devoured up. But if we disguise it, Yes. We survive watch for dragons. Yeah. In my own fantasy writing, um, my I have a three-volume fantasy novel called The Daemon War. The book, the first book, The Gifted, came out last year, and the second book, The Betrayed, just came out this week, actually. Um, I'm very careful not starting out with a message that I'm trying to get across. Mm. I feel like if I start writing a novel with a point of view of getting across a message, then I'm just going to be preachy. I'm going to mm-hmm. 
lose sight of the importance of the characters in the story. So when I'm writing, my goal is to create real characters that you care about, that are compelling, that make real choices, and sometimes they make them well, and sometimes they don't make them well, and they face the consequences of their choices. And there is a real spiritual, a real battle going on, and it is a battle against spiritual forces, if you if you want to put it in those terms. Um, but I'm not. I didn't start out with a with a message. In fact, really, when I'm writing, I'm often starting out with questions more than answers. I'm, I'm beginning my writing with things that I feel like I need to explore, that I need to understand better, things that I'm curious about. Um, and it's really only as the novel progresses that I understand why I had to write it mm-hmm. um, in the first place. I just want to tell good stories. And as a fantasy writer, I also want to create a compelling world. I think if there was um, both the strength and the flaw of uh, the first book in the series, and this gets back to, again, some of your earlier questions about what makes for fantasy writing. Fantasy writing is often set in this other world, right? If, like Narnia, right? Narnia, you can't get to Narnia in our world. It's not in some different continent. It's not even on a different planet. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a whole other world. And a lot of fantasy writing is set, set in some other world setting. Um, and that's one of the things I really enjoy about fantasy writing. In my own fantasy writing, one of the things I want to do is actually give you a sense of, my, of the world that I've created and its landscapes and its cultures, its languages and its history. And so I think one of the things that people most appreciated about the first book in the series was how richly I, I describe the landscape and the cultures. And for other people, that was something they didn't like. They felt it slowed the story down. They wanted more action. Mm-hmm. But I also made a conscious decision that I did not want to glorify violence. I did not want to write another Game of Thrones. Um, in fact, I was very consciously sort of not wanting to do that. And so I, you know, I make sure that I spend more time describing art and music and food in the various cultures that, that you visit through this novel than, than in describing battles and warfare. Yeah. And that's part of what draws me to fantasy literature. It's what I, part of what I love about Tolkien's writing is, you know, he, he tells you about the trees and the flowers, the meals. He just lavishly and lovingly describes the bread and the drink and, you know, and the, the cakes and, these are the things that he cares about and that he wants his readers to care about. Well, I'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast and everything we do here is listener supported. We really rely on you so much and we have been doing a whole lot of work on getting the podcast up and running so you can all hear them as soon as you can. I've got a very good guys doing a lot of work for me in that end. And if you'd like to take part, go to my website at deeperwatersapologetics.com. And there was a section that says, Help Support for Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And there's a link where you can make a donation. You click that, and it'll take you to the Ministry of Risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And you uh, go and you fill out the form there to make a donation. And then when you're done... You contact me or Allie or Mike or Debbie and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And they will make sure that we get it. 
and it will be tax deductible. And if you can be a monthly donor, that is even better. You can buy some books I've written on Amazon or, or co-written, such as Defining and Announcy or Groundless or God and Natural Disasters or A Creed for the Ages, the Apostles' Creed and Today's Christian. And guys, I'm not sure how many of you all have noticed this, but women tend to like jewelry. That, that might be a news flash to some of you, but they do. And Christmas is coming up. The lady in your life might want some jewelry. There's a link there you can buy. The access code is love. My friend Lena Cluster handles that. If you need some t- help, get in touch with me. If you make a purchase for that lady in your life, 25% of what you purchase, if you do it through us, goes towards deeper waters. So, guys, you can buy something special, and it can make up for that screw-up that you did recently. Or it can make up for that screw-up that I know you're going to make in the future. So, I'd really encourage you to do all these. And if you can't, get in touch with me. Let me know you appreciate the show and such. And go on iTunes and leave a positive review. I love them. Now, um, Dr. Dickerson, do you have a uh, charity organization you'd like to see people donate to? My wife and I are very big fans of Food for the Hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a teenager, just starting college, so 30, almost 30 years ago, um, actually more than 30 years ago, I began supporting a child through a child sponsorship program with Food for the Hungry. Mm-hmm. And we have kept that up when we got married uh, every time we've, when we had our second child, we took in a second sponsored child. When we had our third biological child, we took in our third sponsored child. So we've now been sponsoring three children through Food for the Hungry for the past um, 19 years. Mm-hmm. And and I, I actually began it, as I said, I think about 35 years ago. We're very impressed with the work Food for the Hungry does. You can make a one-time donation to them that will help. Um, their overall ministry that can help people in a particular country or particular village, or you can also take on a child through their child sponsorship program. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm looking online. It looks like the website is www.fh.org, right? Yes. Okay. I thought it was FFTH, but... Well, it looks here like F- no. H. I believe you. Now, um, let's get back to talking about Wongren's book here. Uh. Yeah. I hope I pronounced the name right again. Yes. But you know, something I was thinking as I was reading it was it's the ultimate battle of good and evil versus taking place on a farmhouse. Yeah. And I thought, like many people out there probably who attend church, I'm a part of a small group and such. I wonder how many of us might not realize it, but even just our little small group meetings and such could be seen as part of the ultimate battle between good and evil going on well i think that's part of the beauty of the story is um there there is this sort of it, it as it progresses later in the story there is this sort of cosmic physical battle but what you realize is that the real battle takes place not on a battlefield with claws and and hooves but the real battle takes place inside the coop and it's and it's a battle of are you going to treat the person next to you with love today and tomorrow, this morning, this evening, next week and the week after you, even when that person is hard to get along with, even when that's someone that you 
don't like or you butt heads with, um, someone that's, you know, that's difficult to be with, that's, that's what the real battle is. And that's part of, I think, what the story shows beautifully. It, it really is just living it out and, um, in the way we treat one another day in and day out. It's not, it's not these, you know, big cosmic events that the battles won on. It's, um, you know, making dishes, uh, washing the dishes for your spouse. It's, uh, showing up at your weekly prayer group on a morning when you are in a bad mood or when you really didn't feel like going. It's making dinner for somebody else. Um, it's just, you know, it's taking care of the people and being loving and kind to the people, even the ones that are harder, harder for you to be with. And that's when the church, you know, I think that's the kind of the point of the story is that's when the church is winning and when it's, when it's succeeding. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, C.S. Lewis's novel, That Hideous Strength, mm-hmm. is, has a similar idea. There's this big cosmic battle going on for the, for the heart and soul of England and the future of the world. Right. So, you, so this battle, if you look at it at this cosmic scale, has tremendous consequences. Mm-hmm. And yet the very small group of sort of the heroes that live in this little community and are battling this colossal multinational evil organization, they actually do almost nothing over the course of the, over the, over the, course of the story. Right. At one point, one of the characters says, you know, I don't understand how we're going to defeat this big evil multinational organization when all we do is sit and grow good winter vegetables. Mm-hmm. And I think actually, C.S. Part of C.S. Lewis's answer might be that's precisely how we defeat evil in the world. I mean, they're not, they're not just sitting back and doing nothing. But the primary thing they really do is they simply live in community. Mm-hmm. They trust one another. They take care of one another. They're loving and welcoming to people outside of the community. They reach out to people outside the community. Um, but really, the main thing they do is live live in community and carry a witness to the world. Mm-hmm. And the ultimate battle, as, as Lewis portrays it, doesn't come down to them having any sort of strength or might of their own. When it comes down to it, God wins the battle. God, God carries out the victory. Mm-hmm. Their job is just to be faithful day in and day out and all the things that seem like little things in life. And something we should point out about the book also is that the Christian message isn't explicit, but yet at the same time, God is sometimes an active character in the story. Yeah, in both in both um, the book of the Dun Cow and in C.S. Lewis is that hideous strength. In some ways, neither of them are religious books, but in other ways, they're both profoundly theistic and religious books mm-hmm. um, where God's hand is at work in the world and his hand is at work for the most part in those who claim to obey him, whether or not they're going to live that out day in and day out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's move on to the last one. And out of all the ones that we've talked about, this one is my favorite. And at the same time, it caused a whole lot of controversy among Christians when it came out. And that's the Harry Potter series. Now, what do you, what were you thinking when you saw this series come out and saw all the controversy that Christians were having over this series? 
Well, I had three young sons when the books first came out. Um, I think probably early teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, probably actually, I think my oldest son was in middle school. And one was in elementary school, and one might not have even been in elementary school yet when the books came out. I was certainly aware of the controversy, and as a parent, it was very important to me to make good, you know, to have good decision making. What, what is it that I let my kids read? What do I allow them to read? Um, there were enough Christian voices condemning the books that I took very seriously, um, but at the same time, I also understand that there are times when I think the church has uh, not done a good job. They have sort of overreacted against anything that was unfamiliar, um, overreacted uh, against um, literary language or musical language or artistic language without really understanding what it was doing. Kind of like a knee-jerk reaction. Yeah, kind of like a knee-jerk reaction. So it's a, at the one level, I, I certainly respected people who were worried and nervous about the books. Um, but I've seen a lot of that response in the past that I thought was not well-founded. So the obvious thing for me as someone who studied literature and studied fantasy and studied myth and studied scripture was to read the books myself. Um, what I What I came to understand pretty quickly reading through them is that J.K. Rowling is very consistent with C.S. Lewis in how she portrayed magic and enchantment in the stories. Mm-hmm. Part of the confusion, I think, for some Christians is there are at least a couple different types of things that are often called magic. Right. In fact, there's two different Greek words that are often translated to, into, into one modern word, magic. It would be like it would be like if you and I wanted to have a conversation about love and I was talking about agape love and you were talking about eros. Yeah. The conversation wouldn't really be making sense. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and you would be, you might be worried about all sorts of things that I thought were really good and really helpful. Mm-hmm. So, um, these, these two types of magic that Tolkien talks about that actually have two different Greek words. One is a type of magic <clears throat> that you might think of as occult magic is the type of magic that comes from, um, controlling some sort of spiritual powerful entity. Like the genie in the bottle. If you own the bottle, if you possess the bottle, the genie must obey you. Or if you draw circles and draw shapes on the floor and conjure up a spirit, that spirit must obey you. And you have power by enslaving the spirit, whether it's a genie or something else. Mm-hmm. The other, and, and that type of magic J.K. Rowling essentially always portrays as evil. Mm-hmm. There's several instances in the in the in the Harry Potter stories where characters try to gain power by controlling or dominating other spirits, whether they are, um, you know, uh, house elves. Yeah, I thought of immediately. Or or just spells that you that you cast to control or enslave other people like the imperious curse right or whether it's the 
um, you know, the, the creatures that they that some of the evil people set to guard Hogwarts, the soul sucking mm-hmm. uh, dementors. Those are always portrayed by J.K. Rowling as, mm-hmm. as, as evil mm-hmm. to try to gain power by possess, by controlling another spirit or by that sort of occult magic. The second type of magic you might think of is, is uh, better translated as enchantment. Um, it's, it's sort of the – in Lewis and Tolkienian terms, in the terms of a fairy tale, it might be just the power – the power that a tree or a flower has to create delight or create beauty or to, or the healing power of a certain herb is sort of the inherent power in, in things in and of themselves. And I think it really does have a metaphorical example of what you might think of as either spiritual gifts or simply the power of words. The Bible is very clear that our words have power and our words have meaning. It's why we're not supposed to curse one another, why, why we're not supposed to swear, is because our, our words have power and meaning. And, and the, that, we all know, can be used for ill, our words can be used for ill, or our words can be used for good. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, what, again, what J.K. Rowling conveys in her stories. There's one type of magic, occult magic, which is always portrayed as evil. There's another type of magic which is more akin to just enchantment or spiritual gifts or the power of our words, which is a power that can be used for good or for, for evil. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they're very imaginative stories. And I think, again, in terms of uh, a Christian understanding of what's right and what's wrong, very consistent with C.S. Lewis. Yeah, I grew up in the gaming age, pretty much. The yep. Legend of Zelda and such, that was all me right there. And Final Fantasy was another great series of mine. And I'd hear all these parents and such about how our children don't really know the difference between fantasy and reality like this. And I'm just here and thinking, I grew up with this kind of stuff. I think most of us do know the difference between fantasy and reality and such. I'm starting to wonder if a lot of parents know the difference between fantasy and reality. That's a good question. It's a good way to look at it. Mm. And to get back what I quoted C.S. Lewis as saying earlier, I think the job of the educator is not to <laughs> excuse me, not to cut down forests, but to irrigate deserts. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of deserts, and we need to irrigate them. We need to stimulate life and imagination. We need to stimulate imagination. We live in such a, a world world that's unimaginative and devoid of imagination, and to, we need to stimulate that. We don't need to, to kill it or crush it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm also thinking that we had a Holly Ordway on here before. She's a professor of literature at HBU. And one thing she points out, for instance, is when Harry Potter looks in the mirror of Erised, which shows him his heart's deepest desire, that he doesn't see him with power and glory or anything like that. He sees himself with his parents, who, if yes. you viewers don't know the story, the parents died when Harry Potter was a boy, they died protecting him. And then when you look at the Weasleys, these are a very close, this is a very close-knit family, but family is extremely important in the world of J.K. Rowling. And there's a lot of examples that I think we can learn from today about the importance of self-sacrificial love and the importance of not pursuing power. Mm -hmm. I'll be honest, I think um, think youth today are much more likely to be seduced by 
economic greed and commercialism than they are to be seduced by an overactive imagination. Right. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're bombarded day in and day out by the message that if you want to be, if you want to be significant as a human being, you need to buy more things. Mm-hmm. That's a much more dangerous message than to believe that the world is full of enchantment. And we can also add in the whole message, for instance, that so many kids buy into that uh, they have to be wanted sexually if it's yes. going to be. Wanted. Yeah, I mean, that that's a very very, very big lure. Very destructive message. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So those are the things I'm much more worried about with with youth today than that they'll be too imaginative. Now, now some people might uh, also have some qualms because Harry Potter himself is kind of a questionable figure in many ways because he does so much that's wrong. He gets in trouble so often and he sticks his nose in where it really doesn't belong and yet still winds up being the hero somehow. I thought, which one of us is really not like that. Well, the other thing, and I agree with you on that, but the other thing I think that the author, J.K. Rowling, shows, especially um, in the later books, is that Harry Potter actually often um, causes a lot of hurt. Yeah. I mean, even if things in the very end might work out well, as they say, there are, there are people who die because of his bad decision-making. Right. And that's a pretty powerful moral lesson. Yeah. I mean, I think including his, you know, spoiler alert here, but I think including his godfather. Yeah. Sirius Black, right? Yeah. So even there, I think J.K. Rowling does a good job of saying, you know, look, Harry Potter keeps thinking he can get away with doing whatever he wants. And it doesn't always work out that way. Uh And death is presented (laughs) as very, very real. In the yes. books, there's no way of overcoming death no. itself. And we could even look and say that, uh, you know, just recently the whole series picked up again. We've got Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them playing in movie theaters. And we have a book, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. And if you know anything, if you read that book, I'm not going to tell you what happens, but pretty much the main reason that everyone has so much suffering in the book is because they try to reverse death. Yes. And we, we know there's only one way that that will happen. Mm-hmm. Christ Christ is the only one with the power to reverse death. In mm-hmm. the, the main enchantment in Harry Potter that you learned from the book is actually love. It's love right. that saved the life of Harry Potter, and it's love that ends up killing Voldemort in the end. Yeah, no, I, I, I fully agree. I, I, I don't think they're perfect. Stories. I don't think all the elements of the writing are wonderful. I, I don't think I would use, if I was teaching a creative writing class, which I've done frequently, I've taught a lot of creative writing classes, I, I probably would not be pulling J.K. Rowling as my example for teaching creative writing. Um, but, you know, putting that aside, I think there's a lot of positive that can be said about those stories. And I have in the end, I was very glad that my all of my that my kids read those books and didn't read, you know, a lot of other things or weren't watching television instead. Yeah. You know, mm. they weren't reading Christian Parrot. Yeah. I was very happy ultimately to have my kids read those stories. Yeah. What do you think maybe parents could learn when they see that these that kids were just naturally fascinated by these kinds of stories. And some of them looking and saying, my child has an interest in the occult. That's not really it, is it? 
No, the Harry Potter stories have almost nothing to do with the occult. And as I said, mm-hmm. when there is portrayals of the occult in the stories, they are all, it is always portrayed as evil mm-hmm. and damaging and something that you should stay away from. Right. The occult is not portrayed as something attractive in the stories. Mm-hmm. You know, the few places that sort of occultish magic comes up, it is portrayed as evil and dark and bad and destructive. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do think, though, is two things that I think stimulated such a phenomenal success of the story. One mm-hmm. is the belief that there was something more, that there's more to the universe than what we can see and touch and feel with our hands. Mm-hmm. Um, that there, that there is something spiritual or supernatural or or enchanted about the universe. The universe, you know, I would say the universe is inhabited by God. Mm-hmm. That everything has meaning because of that. Um, but like the old myths said, if, if you can't jump immediately to say to saying the universe is inhabited by God. It's at least a good first step to say the universe is inhabited by the gods, mm-hmm. that there's more to life than what we can see and touch and feel. So I think there's a real hunger for that. Mm-hmm. But also the stories just convey very powerfully that um, that every single person is meaningful and significant and valuable. Mm-hmm. That we're not just valuable because of what we can do or because of our skills or because of how pretty we are. We're not simply valuable because we're sexually attractive to somebody else um, or because we're good athletes, that that our worth is inherent and it has to do with being created in the image of God and our decisions matter. Mm-hmm. And so I think kids reading these stories, that they can, that communicates to that to them. It communicates to them that they have, that not only do they have meaning and significance as human beings, but that their actions and their choices also have meaning and significance. Mm-hmm. To give another spoiler alert, when you were going through the books for the first time, were you very surprised when you got to the final book and there in a scene in a graveyard you find Bible verses written on tombstones? No. By the time I got to the fifth book, I actually told several people that um, this is a story that I thought could not have been written by someone who wasn't either a Christian or had been deeply influenced by Christian thought. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know much about, you know, the nature of Jake, of what any faith that J.K. Rowling might, might or might not have. I don't want to assume anything that's there or not there. Mm-hmm. I don't think J.K. Rowling wants to get pigeonholed. But at the very minimum, I could not read those books and not see a profound Christian um, message in them. What is um, it many different ways. Maybe the most significant one is the, the notion that there, you know, we, we are fighting against a, a spiritual darkness. We are fighting a spiritual battle. Mm-hmm. And for most people, that's really inconvenient and they would rather ignore it and just live a comfortable life. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think one of the indictments of American Christianity is that we're much more interested in being comfortable. We're really thankful for all the freedoms that we have as Christians in this country. Um, But it's not because we use those freedoms to, you know, do do God's work as much as we use. We appreciate the freedoms because they enable us to be comfortable. 
-hmm. and to acknowledge that there's real battle out there may get us out of our comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And that's really at the core of books five, six, and seven in the series. Mm -hmm. You've got a small group of people who are willing to acknowledge that there is a battle and that we have to fight the battle, Mm -hmm. that there is an enemy and that that enemy is at work. And most people just want to ignore it and get angry at those who, who are trying to fight the battle. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear that it is a spiritual battle. You know, yeah. um, we're not battling other f- flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. You know, from the beginning of book one, um, Harry Potter's sort of antagonist is this other boy at school with him, Drac, you know, um, Drac oh, Malfoy. Malfoy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And... Harry never sets it out to destroy him or kill. In fact, he often forgives him or rescues him or, or, or refuses to harm him. He even help, you know, he even helps save his life. Mm-hmm. You know, so he never sees the, the big mean bullies as the enemy. Yeah. And to give a spoiler alert, it actually comes back to help him because in the final book, yeah, Bakewood becomes a hero. Yeah. In fact, he doesn't, he won't even, he, you know, he, he won't even kill, um, he refuses to use a, to use his power to kill somebody else. Yeah. Yep. So what would you say then, as we start to wrap things up to your Christian says, you know, this all sounds very interesting and such, but I've got so much of a reading. I want to read my Bible and love listeners to this podcast. I want to read my apologetics books. I just don't know if I have a time for fairy tales. Well, I'll say a couple things. First of all, um, there's a lot of different literary styles. Mm-hmm. And I, I, when I talk about how fairy tales are valuable and how they have moved me, that doesn't necessarily mean they're, they're the best style or the right style for everybody else. There's a lot of different musical styles. There's a lot of different styles of film. And I think it's perfectly legitimate to appreciate one style over another and to, you know, and, and, to, and to not spend lots of time reading a book that's not going to be moving to you or not going to be personally insightful mm-hmm. to you. There's, there's so many good books in the world that no one can read them all. Right. So if someone starts to read The Hobbit, or the Lord of the Rings and really just doesn't like it and doesn't connect with it. Or they start to read the Harry Potter stories and they just don't like them and don't connect with them. I, you know, that's fine with me. I'd say, don't, don't bother reading them anymore. I mean, the fact that I'm reading, you know, when I'm reading the Lord of the Rings, I'm not reading Shakespeare mm-hmm. or not reading some other great American novel. I'm not reading Dostoevsky. There's lots of things that we can invest in reading. So I'm not going to tell people it's, it's, that they ought to somehow read it. What I would say though is um, don't dismiss it or ridicule it and uh, just because you don't like it. And I'd also say most importantly that even if it's not fantasy literature, I think Christians do need to read um, imaginatively and artistically. We, we need to read beyond just sermons mm-hmm. and rational ideas. Yeah. We need to train our imaginations to understand stories, um, to understand metaphor. You cannot read the Bible and understand the Bible without being able to artistically enter into a metaphor. Mm -hmm. The Bible from beginning to end speaks in story and metaphor. The very first psalm 
begins right early in that very first psalm by saying, you know, and inviting you to imagine a tree planted by a stream of water. That is a metaphor, and that is an invitation for your imagination to begin to think about what that tree is like and how is it that I am to be like that. So I think Christians, maybe we don't need to read fantasy literature, but we ought to be reading either poetry or novels or fairy tales or, you know, great stories of some form or another. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I would highly recommend um, maybe to give this argument much better than I can. I would recommend Eugene Peterson's books, Tell It Slant and The Jesus Way, mm-hmm. and Eat This Book. Mm-hmm. It's three wonderful, um, close theological explorations of the importance of story and metaphor and of how we read um, and, how we, and, and how we need to be shaped even in, even in order to understand the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking a lot of people are listening to that say, say yeah, I don't really think this would be too constructive for me, but at the same time, there are strangely fine time to go see that new Star Wars movie when it comes out. Yes, that's right. Yeah, if, if time is the issue, if you say, well, I can't read because I don't have time, um, I think for most people, that I, I find that hard to believe that's, that it's not an issue of time, it's an issue of priorities. Right. Yep. Yeah, Uh I think it's, yeah, I've got plenty, of, I don't have a time where, unless I cut out all this other fun stuff and such that I'm doing, then maybe, lo and behold, I'll suddenly find out that I do have a time. Yeah. So, um, I would, I'd recommend to people reading, um, some of the writings of, uh, Stephen Lawhead, his Arthurian trilogy, and his other, um, fantasy writings, I would recommend, Jeffrey Overstreet's Aurelia's Colors in that series of four um, fantasy novels in, in that Aurelia's uh, Thread series. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of writers. If you're looking for places to start, that I would highly recommend. Well, and of course, Walt Wangren, whom we've already talked about. And I'm going to, in fact, recommend you all get a copy of From Homeward to Harry Potter. Right now, I'm looking on Amazon. The paperback is 1920. The Kindle is 1416. Like, could be less than for Cyber Monday. We don't know. But I really recommend that you get that. Um, Dr. Dickerson, it's been great having you here, but we're coming to a time to start wrapping things up and such. Do you have a blog or website where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Well, I think you've already mentioned it. Um, www.matthewdickerson.net. Mm-hmm is my author's website. And I also have a Facebook uh, author's webpage that I keep, um, that I'm more actively uh, updating and maintaining. And um, certainly I'd be delighted if, you know, uh, people picked up and read my fantasy series, if they're interested in fantasy, The Gifted is the first volume. And, the Betrayed is the brand new edition, brand new book that just came out this week. Mm-hmm. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to leave of a deeper waters audience today? No, I'm very thankful for the opportunity to come and talk, uh, to have a conversation with somebody about things that are, I think, important and interesting and things that I 
uh, care about. So it's just, it's always a delight to converse with somebody who's thought mm-hmm. about important things, about literature and imagination, and about what these things mean to the Christian to the Christian faith. And that goes both ways. Yeah. I think maybe I'd give one more recommendation, too, if you're a fan of the music of Andrew Peterson. Um, I would also recommend his four-volume children's um, fairy tales uh, that begin with um, At the Edge of the Dark Sea of Darkness. Uh, the Wing Feathers Saga is another series. Uh, very whimsical and and uh, enjoyable, but very profound and deep. Well, Dr. Dickerson, it's been great having you here, and hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Thank you very much. I'd like to remind everyone that next week, Dr. Hugh Ross is coming back to the show. He's going to be talking about his book, The Improbable Planet. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs>